One of the most exciting aspects of bringing new characters into Magic the Gathering is the endless potential for fresh narratives. Does the character bolster a plane's existing lore, or add depth to an established tribe, or do we get a brief glimpse into something new entirely? Luckily for us, this set seems to have it all. Welcome to Magic the Flavoring, the Magic the Gathering podcast, where we talk about all things magic, flavor design, and lore. I'm your host, Andy Mann. Hello, this is Nathan Cancel. And we are on our third consecutive episode talking about Commander Legends, not including all of the times we spoke about it in previous episodes up until now. Um, are you bored about talking about Commander Legends yet? No, no, it's a continuing saga. I like this. This is life now. Yeah, I'm <laughs> still really stoked. When A Courier came out uh, earlier this year, was it this year? God, what is time? Um, yeah. <laughs> when A Courier came out, I was, I'll be honest with you, I enjoy doing our lore episodes, but even that, I was kind of done with the plane by the time we got there. And I really liked Courier. It's just if you talk about it so much and over and over and over in different episodes, you start to get a bit like lethargic talking about it. And I am still so not over commander legends i mean i say this on we're recording this on uh friday the 20th of november 2020 um so our non-pre-release boxes of magic because you and i didn't manage to get any pre-release stock um whatever a pre-release is now um like the it's only now officially able to be sold. So saying that I'm tired about talking about it might seem a little bit glib. But, you know, on the lead-up, we already knew what the card gallery, gallery was a few weeks ago. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm still all in. I, I played against some Commander Legends cards last night during an EDH, EDH spell table session. People already had their product. Um, have you faced off against many Commander Legends stuff? I haven't yet, no. Um, I've, we did like a little uh, budget build within our like stores group, and then mm. everyone did like a sealed deck. But they obviously all got their pre-release stuff, and I still am yet to. I, I told people boldly that, yeah, yeah, I'll be, I'll be ready by Friday. Um, yeah, it hasn't arrived yet. I so mean, I'm, I'm in the same group. I said exactly <laughs> the same thing. So yeah, we, we both look like yeah. complete dicks. Um, I think one of uh, one of the guys last night played uh, an um, uh, abomination of Lanoir deck, uh, a Golgari deck, which. Yeah, like I wasn't huge on it as a Golgari commander because there are some pretty strong ones out there, and this mm. one did pretty well, to be honest with you. It, it functioned really well. I think it was the upgraded 100 card version of the 60 card sealed deck that he made. So, yeah, really cool. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, very cool. Um, last week, we spoke about the uh, old law or the lore which was already established for a lot of the characters that got their first cards in Commander Legends, or maybe if some of them didn't get their first cards, or maybe the first cards that we felt really represented that character really well. Uh, this week, we are going to continue on with the lore episodes, and we are going to do the new lore for creatures that have got uh, legendary cards in this set that come from no established lore. So they might have some uh, lore background in terms of they come from a plane that's already known about and already uh, established in Magic. Some of them come from planes where we don't know where they come from, so it could be a new place or it could be an already established place, but we just don't know that they fit into that little realm. But these are going to be characters that we have not seen before on flavor text, on previous cards, on other spells, or as far as I'm aware in any of the literature. Now, Magic literature, as much as we bemoan not having much nowadays, there is quite a deep and extensive back catalogue of books and articles and fan fiction and whatnot 
that a lot of uh, world-building teams pull from when they're making new quote-unquote characters for Magic. So if we do get some of these wrong, uh, I can only apologise now, but I'm pretty certain after doing a lot of research into these characters and a lot of kind of digging into where we could find their names on like cards or in like books or whatever, I'm pretty sure almost all of these are completely fresh new characters. Um, so yeah, this is the new lore episode. Again, like last week, we haven't gone through all of them because I'm not interested in making a three-hour podcast. I don't think you're interested in listening to a three-hour podcast out there. I mean, if you are, tell us, but we're still not going to do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So we are going to do our top six. So much like last week where we had six slots, we doubled up with some like uh, pairings of characters of cards that we thought were really important that they got their first proper creature card this week we're going to do the same but for the new ones for designs or you know characters or whatever that we feel are really fresh and exciting for the game in a myriad of different ways but yeah these will be our top six each so you're still getting 12 slots with potentially more than 12 characters if we double up so stop whinging why are you coming at us stop at us <laughs> um <laughs> No one's at us on Twitter about this. No one's getting angry. If anything, our community of listeners is very supportive and we love you all. But, you know, stop going on at us. Um, <laughs> you are a self-contained argument. It's fantastic. I, love I, some, it. <laughs> I sometimes think that if I didn't argue with myself under the guise of other people arguing with me, I'd actually be a lot less stressful in my life um, and probably be a lot happier. <laughs> How, how far are we going with with fixing that? Are we, have we tried the alternative at all? <laughs> Not even once. No. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> well, well, hey ho, hey ho. This is good. We'll consider this therapy sessions. It's fine. It's I'll, more fun I'll, I'll this be, way. It's more fun this way. Um, exactly. Cool. I mean, so I've got six slots. Have you doubled up on any? Have you got any like? I've uh, doubled up on one. Yeah, on one. Ah, so th- yeah. Three obvious. Yeah. I'm really excited to hear about those guys. I mean, I've got my six here ready to go. Do you want to just crack on? Yeah, do you want to start or should I start? I will start because you started last week, so I will start this one. Everything is fair. Uh, Okay, so my first brand new character to Magic that I'm really excited for and really want to see more of as well is Blim Comedic Genius. So Blim Comedic Genius is two generic black-red for a 4-3 legendary creature imp. Our first imp at legendary uh, status. Uh, Blim has flying. Whenever Blim, comedic genius, deals combat damage to a player, that player gains control of target permanent you control. Then each player loses life and discards cards equal to the number of permanents they don't own. Art by Jason A. Engel, which is worth noting because it's really cool artwork. Um, So yeah, so we have basically another Zedru card. So Zedru the Greathearted was a commander where you give away permanence to other players as well. A lot of people are saying this is like the anti-Zedru from a design perspective, but it's not really the anti-Zedru, is it? It's still... Zedru didn't give you things when they gave you the permanence yeah. away. So this it's is... like converse triggers, but like they still work within the same idea of, of play pattern. Yeah. They're just going to have slightly different effects. Yeah, One's cause... affecting your opponent negatively, whereas Zedru obviously affected you positively. Yeah, so Zedru, I guess Zedru was like kind of a, a group hug commander, and we all know group hug commanders really aren't group hug commanders. They are group hug Fuck commanders. Group hug. Yeah, <laughs> group, group hug stab you in the back. That's what a real group hug deck is. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas, uh, yeah, Blim, obviously being in Rakdos colours, has the black in there. Zedru was uh, Jeskai, I believe. So yeah, kind of different, different sort of shells, but same idea. Um, as a character, Blim is a member of the Rakdos cult on Ravnica. So last week we spoke spoke about Jury, master of the review, who ran a review and ran a club which uh, the Rakdos kind of performed in. Blim, ostensibly, is one of these performers in the Rakdos cult. 
Uh, so, the, like I said, they are the first legendary imp. Uh, they are a comedian, first and foremost, uh, first and foremost, sorry. And in true Rakdos fashion, uh, Blim often boasts that his uh, act slays the audience. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He probably <laughs> goes around killing his audience members as well. Nice little wordplay there. Um, he's considered by many to actually be a bit of a hack, but his little law blurb suggests that if you heckle him and if you kind of get rowdy at his uh, shows, that's okay. But as soon as you throw something, he has quote unquote been known to throw sharp objects back. So yeah, he's one of these kind of you know sore losers, bit of a hack, terrible comedian, but in Rakdos fashion, doesn't think twice about killing you before uh, you know to kill it off his audience. Like that's actually part of the show. Um, I absolutely love this. I I was saying last week again with Jury that I want to see more like performative artists represented in legendary creatures like we said on the before both you and i come from a, a theatric background and so seeing cr- characters and legendary creature cards that still work within the realms of like combat or still work within the realms of the game functionality are artists or poets or actors or musicians or whatever else and sometimes we get a card like uh like Yisan, Wandering Bard, right? Where he's a musician, he's literally a bard, that's his title. But his, the way that they've kind of worked it is that they have have him being able to summon and control creatures because that's what his harp does, his lyre, right? So that's mm. his ability. And that kind of works. You don't necessarily have to make him like a musician. But I guess it's kind of hard that unless you want to make a whole new mechanic to represent what a performer does you know, like make up a new kind of counter, for example, like a law counter. Like what would you do? Would you do like a a play script counter if you were doing like a playwright mm. or something? It's kind of hard. So I do understand it. Yeah. Um but then the other side of things is when you get a character like Hoatli, um, warrior poet, who is literally within her society on Ixalan, she is an orator. She's a poet who recounts the glories of the Sun Empire, and she kind of, you know, performs them out as well as being an established warrior. But her character as a planeswalker, in all our planeswalker cards, does nothing really about the theatrical poet side of her title. It's all yeah. about her affinity for dinosaurs and warriors. So to see creature cards like Jury and like Blim that are more representative of what they do as an act, I think it's really encouraging. And as his design is, I think it's kind of a stretch, maybe slightly, for a comedian to be giving things away and then blowing, like, the, the permanents basically blow up in your face. I like the idea that you're it's almost like he's giving you a joke and then the punchline hits you. Yes, they see that is very cool, and I do like that, and that is they kind of crowbarred it in. I also made a note of saying that it's it does fit in very much with the kind of Halloweeny trick or treat aspects that the Rakdos kind of fall into. Yeah. I know they're not like yeah. the spooky kooky guild per se, but if they were to have any holiday that they would be affiliated to, I'm pretty certain it would be Halloween. You know, so the idea that he gives away things that are meant to be nice, like his jokes, you're quite right that you know end up blowing up the audience faces and you know maiming them or like you know mm. you don't like the gift because it's not a very funny joke so yeah you get hurt because of it because he doesn't like people not laughing at his jokes so i think it's slightly convoluted but if you are going to make a rakdos comedian this is exactly the kind of thing that i think you should be mm. doing um so yeah i really like blim i mean just also imps are just cool man like they've got really flippant names and they are cheeky but you know blim yeah i love it i, just I can imagine really cool. him being 
I can imagine him like yeah, like play, playing to the audience. It's a shame that his artwork doesn't actually play him in front of an audience. Mm. I also like the idea that his um, ability is almost like you know when clowns give you that flower and then you go to sniff it and, and it squirts water in your face. Yeah. Like I can see it. I can see it rep- representing a lot of different um, aspects of of comedy. I just think that maybe the issue here is that the artwork doesn't necessarily play towards a um, like a whimsical comedic response. It's more just. Uh, uh, no, no offense to Engel because I think his artwork's amazing, but that could just be any old imp. This is true. This is true. I think he does have a lot of character. Like he's got a big sort of rictus grin on his face, and he's clearly mm. in sort of some sort of Rakdos hangout. Um, but yeah, I think maybe the art direction was focusing too much on the character and not maybe enough on the setting to really sell it as yeah, exactly. a performer. Yeah. But then I think this is maybe the problem with all like characters that are maybe have a job, if you like, is it's very hard mm. to show them being like grandiose in their job unless their job is you know something like warlord or king for example you know if you give someone like who you know it's just kind of tough um but yeah i think a good step forwards to having these kinds of characters like jury and blim respectively and uh yeah a really cool new character to magic that i hope they they continue using in the future yeah very much so again yeah anytime they give a character a creature type that hasn't had one a legendary creature they're doing good things Mm. doing good things um speaking of which We've got some, um, we've got some, uh, some, some more anthropomorphized wizards uh, coming over the hill. So I'm going to start talking about Arkelos and Quain. Um, yes. I'm getting like the big gun out of the way for it fairly early. Um, the thing that's nice about Arkelos, so Arkelos Lagoon Mystic um, is one and soul tie, so black, green, blue for a two four turtle shaman, um, obviously legendary. Um, as long as he is tapped, other permanents enter the battlefield tapped, and as long as he is untapped, other permanents enter the battlefield untapped. Flavor text life. Is not a race. <laughs> so, um, and then Quain, uh, his uh, counterpart is uh, Quain, itinerant meddler. Um, itinerant meaning um, that he flies from place to place. Um, he is a 1 3 legendary rabbit wizard, um, which is automatically awesome. Rabbit um, wizard. Love it. Rabbit wizards. Yeah. I mean, my biggest criticism of Quain is that the first time I wanted rabbit wizard, I wanted to see the wizard that created the Visidrix. And I thought this is going to be the first time that we see the Visidrix creator because that would have been a really cool deep cut. Never mind. There's still time. Visidrix has never, hasn't died yet. Uh, but that would that would be a rabbit wizard, as in a wizard of rabbits, not a rabbit wizard, yeah. a wizard who is a rabbit. Do you see? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's super clear. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I know. <laughs> I get you mean. It's, it's a rabbit who happens to be a wizard, not a wizard who got turned into a rabbit. Yeah, yeah. No, I, get you. I get you. But you can't put wizard rabbit because class always has to come afterwards. See, they, they shoehorn themselves into these uh, mechanical um, um, corridors that allow no freedom of movement. Where's the artistic creativity, Mr. <laughs> Man? Um, anyway, he's a 1-3 taps that have each player may draw a card, then each player who did draw a card this way gains a life um, for uh, for a blue and a white. Um, the interesting thing about these two is they play, obviously, to the, um, to the cliche of um, the tortoise and the hare dynamic from mm. Aesop's Fables, uh, the idea that slow and steady wins the race. Um, or as I like to see it is that if you keep going, even though it's really difficult and it might take a long time, you're going to get further than the person who shoots for the stars immediately and then quits before they even finish. Mm. Um, I, I don't, it's basically the same thing with more flamboyance but I mean I like to think it's more than just take your time it's more keep at it um, anyway point being that they obviously have played this uh, uh, dynamic that the um, Arkelos is um, um, 
they they call him they call him a chronic. Um, essentially, he's while working with time magic. Uh, the thing that's interesting about him is he's got more of like a natural affinity with chronomancy, whereas uh, it's more like a, an, an innate interaction with the na- with the world around him, rather than say um, Jura or Teferi, which use like forged like manipulation, like they've learnt the craft of, of yeah, they're of temporal mages, yeah, exactly. Whereas he's like it's almost like inherent and part of himself. Um, the thing that I like about this is it's almost like because it's like an innate power and it is considerable like it warps the world around him to make it a slower pace like it feels similar power levels like Aminatu of where like she has like a track into a form of magic that is super super dangerous like we see this in like um, other IPs like Marvel um, like superhero things where someone has like like say Captain Marvel for example like you can have exponentially way stronger abilities than uh, I guess he's got claws you know mm. so, so I feel like this is one of those situations where his inherent ability, if it wasn't for the fact that he's not particularly malicious um, and he seems to be kind of like distant from everything around him, like it could be very, very dangerous. Because mm. um, the effect that it has not only in a law state is extreme, but within the game is really extreme as well. Because um, the ability to make, to be able to t- um, to force every, everyone's, uh, every, every, everything to come in either tapped or untapped based on, all you have to do is throw an enchantment on him that taps or untaps him for an activated ability and you can wreak havoc across the entire table. Obviously, coming to play tap lands become really abusive, that kind of thing. It's almost like they didn't think Soul Day had enough different directions for value. So mm-hmm. they went, hey, have some untapped tap shenanigans coming in. Um, the reason why I do like it is because um, it does feel almost like, it feels ve- almost like Faye in the way that it does it. It's almost like a glamour. Like anyone who comes into contact with him slows down to his pace as well automatically. It's almost like that scene in um, Lord of the Rings where Merry and Pippin want the tree uh, the tree folk to, um, or the Ents, sorry, to, um, to to hurry up in their conversation. And they're like, we've only just said hello. Yeah. Like, calm down, young whippersnappers. And I like this idea. And it's the juxtaposition between him and obviously Quain. Quain being super super quick like going like go, going hell for leather but acting essentially like i mean we've done like four different ips within this uh blurb already but it's kind of similar to the uh white rabbit um from alice in wonderland you know being late for a very important date um the thing i don't like about quain um compared to um Arkelos is because as much as mechanically he's pushing everyone to draw cards it's a may so they don't actually have to it's a decision that they that yes. they, they can make whereas i feel like it should be pushed um i feel like it should be a forced action i also feel like it should have either flash or haste uh because again like that ability to be su- nothing about him particularly denotes super 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 quickness in any way shape or form he can't activate his ability the turn he comes in which feels like a miss to me all he's doing is making everyone kind of do a single thing it doesn't feel like acceleration necessarily. Um, and I feel like maybe because of that, if he is like this impulsive character, maybe he should have been red, um, white red instead of white blue. Mm. Like this idea of being impulsive, you've got impulsive draw. Had everyone had, if everyone had the ability to tap each player exiles the top card of their library, they may play that card until um, until the end of their next go. If they do, some if they do play that card, something happens. That I think would be way cooler. Forcing the entire table to do impulsive draw, I think, is really interesting. The reason I say that is because I think it's quite a generic, crappy kind of Azurius ability. I feel like kind of similar to Jury. Like there are better options for you in Azurius to do this, and it doesn't necessarily speak to his character as much as you. I feel like he could have made a more nuanced ability. Sure. Whereas with Arkelos, not only is it a really strong, powerful ability that hasn't necessarily been seen before, it plays directly into kind of his character of forcing everyone to go at his pace, um, which I think is very interesting. Mm. I do I do think, though, that these are definitely more design of character over design of uh, function, though, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think these are deliberately... Uh, what I've put here is I think it's um, it's, it's an interest... It's, I don't, we, don't, I don't, we don't know where they're from. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that they've gone straight anthropomorphization with the fact that they do still have like human hands, but they're very much animals first rather than being 
um, humans that have an animalistic um, characteristic to them. They are very much there at the animal that's, you know, developed evolution wise, you know, our great debate of what's the difference between a cat and a, um, a leonin, for example. Um, so where um, is a question? I'm not entirely sure because we have nothing to go on. I mean, a, th- a, com- a common theme going forward for me is going to be maybe Strixhaven, uh, mostly because I think I'm really excited about seeing that plane. And maybe this could work towards that. But I feel like it's more of a natural plane. I could have seen these being in Eldraine if it wasn't for the fact that Eldraine kind of separates their animals and their humans out quite differently. Mm. So um, what I've put down is it's, it's likely that just nebulous characters with interesting concepts that won't be followed up on. Um, if we do follow up on it, that plane's going to be really interesting. It feels a little bit like Lorwyn, this idea of yeah. um, like the Aurora changing night and day, Arkelos being able to like slow down time. Um, that idea, the fact you've got a genuine rabbit wizard, like it's it's cool concepts and i feel like these are like little drops of where they're going to see whether people react to them i don't necessarily think they have plans for them immediately in the future but they could come back to this oh okay actually people are okay with animals being you know anthropomorphized which we have been for the entire time wizards listen um and then maybe we'll go back to that plane and see them yeah for sure yeah i like the design i think they're a little bit on the nose of the aesop's fable uh parable um but yeah i think they're really cool Quain and Arkelos. People went nuts for Arkelos, especially because everyone just. Oh, loves God, him. yeah. Well, also, he's a turtle wizard, but even though he's really a tortoise. Um, well, he's a turtle shaman. Turtle shaman, shaman, sorry, but he's a tortoise. Yes, he's okay. not a turtle. No, I, yeah, well, <laughs> let's not start this again. Yeah. Because Quain looks on. like a hair to me. But anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> um, so, my next one is uh, this is the artwork where people just went, what the fuck is Commander Legends going to be about? The next one I've got up is The Prismatic Piper. So oh, Prismatic yeah, Piper is a five colorless for a 3-3 three, three legendary creature shapeshifter at common. Uh, if the Prismatic Piper is your commander, choose a color before the game begins. The Prismatic Piper is the chosen color, and it has partner. The flavor text reads, it is everything and nothing. So, oh, the artwork as well, it should be noting, is by... Uh, okay, Seb McKinnon. So this is the artwork yeah, right. where it shows the. Uh, I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, you will. I mean, I don't know what you've been doing really around Commander Legends. Uh, this is the kind of snake-like, almost uh, elemental. I guess it's a shapeshifter, but it's also it has elemental kind of vibes, where it's got the different colors of magic forming through different uh, sort of element elements. I guess so. You have like the kind of yeah. black smoke, you into blue water, into green tree, into red flame, into white. Something I have no idea what the white section of his body. I'm like, can you do that with the white something? That's just basically mechanical white. Wh- yeah, white. yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, yeah whatever, whatever it does. And he's, uh, <laughs> he's got like a kind of mask-like face that he's holding, and he's holding a pipe or a flute into uh, kind of spindly little arms. Um, it's crazy. And it, again, this is the artwork where when people saw it, they were like, if, "Is this a legendary creature? Is it a spell? Who knows?" Um, the prismatic piper from a lore perspective, uh, is a spirit of pure mana that can be accessed by magic users across the multiverse to cast spells they previously would not have been able to cast. So it literally adds mana to their abilities. So if you're primarily a green mage, you might find yourself suddenly being able to cast black mana spells. Um, It's not exactly a creature, as in, like, how like a Leonin is a creature, or like how a human is a creature within the law, but it's kind of the concept that researchers across the multiverse have placed on this phenomenon of being able to use mana that, that you didn't previously have access to, and it's based on the idea that these mages, when they're in a great time of stress and they suddenly throw out a black spell that they haven't been able to cast before, this has been foreshadowed by them hearing loud 
pipe music being played from somewhere, like they hear it in their head. And then as soon as this phenomenon finishes, they lose all knowledge of how to use the mana that they couldn't previously access. And this has been something that has been noted across the multiverse. Quite how, as an objective observer looking at the multiverse, these different researchers know that it's something that's been accessed across the multiverse. Or maybe they don't, and maybe that's just something we know. There's always a little bit of a weird meta-narrative going on there. Yeah. So it's like an narrator sitting there going, let me tell you a story of the multiverse. Yeah, I think maybe it's just that this phenomenon has been noticed on multiple planes, so we as the players know that. Um, and so the Prismatic Piper, whilst it is a embodiment of this kind of random manner that kind of pops up from time to time, it's not necessarily a creature. And it's said that it's it doesn't have its own will, so it is literally a manifestation of pure mana, much more than, say, elementals or avatars. Um, I've put down here that this is interesting that he can, uh, that the spirit can be anywhere in the multiverse, because that is very much like the Ur-Dragon or Arabo. Eldrazi. Eldrazi. Mm. I say Arabo, mm. I think that's just the headcanon that most people have put onto Arabo, that he's like the Ur-Cat. I don't actually think that's exactly yeah. what he is. I think oh, I think it's kind of been semi semi confirmed that he is like there is an Ur chair out there, for example, like the chair of chairs that represents sure. all chairs throughout the world. So I think yeah, there is a degree of canon to that. Fair enough. So this might be like the Ur manor. This could be very much be the the thing that is that is manor across the multiverse. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I think the lore is super interesting, and I think we need more characters like this because as much as it's a lot cleaner just to have planeswalkers and uh creatures and eldrazi that can flit across the blind eternities to different multi uh versus in the multiverse it doesn't make sense that that would be the case if there is access between if these realms are physical spaces within the blind eternities mm. it makes a lot of sense that there are many phenomena that can go in between them. Um, and I think this is a really good representation of one of them. Uh, just the whole thing is just really unique and interesting. Um, I was going to say, it feels like they tried to justify... So they obviously had to make this card to fit for the limited format, the idea being that, okay, you as a mage... And it was felt like a little tongue-in-cheek where they're saying, oh, suddenly that mage suddenly knew how to use black mana. And obviously if you draft a load of green cards and you suddenly have some black cards, you're like, ah, uh, Prismatic Piper, help! Um, so I, th- I like that meta-narrative um, quite a lot. But I also um, I like the idea that it's... Um, that it creates almost a more interesting character because they had to force a story that met the needs mechanically. And then it creates questions of like, what do you mean it could exist anywhere and everywhere? Mm. What do you mean it just comes and goes throughout the multi? That's actually quite a funny that they obviously try and have, they have to fabricate a story for something um, that's almost like mundane because it has to be in the set to make the set work that actually creates more interesting lore than say any of the other characters potentially do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the function of it is this is... I think for me, pure flavor because the function of it is exactly what we need in terms of function. And they've made the flavor fit for what it does. But a little bit anti to what we're saying with Blim, where they like, they kind of have to crowbar one or the other in to kind of fit the other one. This is a character which does exactly the thing which we need it to do on the battlefield. And I kind of feel like that's all we've been talking about for the past year on this podcast is exactly that. How does the bit of cardboard as a play piece work as a narrative? And this is exactly it. The only other meta thing where I'm a little bit like, oh, they really need to clean this up or they need to pick a lane. And this kind of branches out to the entirety of Magic, really, as a game. It adds the color to the color identity of your deck. So if you're playing like a, a blue partner, you partner this up with it, you can add another color. So suddenly it becomes uh, like a red-blue deck or whatever else. Does Is the commander, like is your creature as the commander the character that's 
leading the deck, or are you the player, the person which is having the color added to it? Because the prismatic pipe is not it's not it's not partnering you, the player. It's partnering no, it's your partnering other creature. The, okay. no? Yeah, I have it that it's I have it that say for example you have um say Blim. Let's 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 say for example Blim and you wanted to play um Blim in a way that used Zedru, and so you wanted all like the blue donate effects. I like the idea that the Prismatic Piper is allowing uh, Blim, who wanted to pilot the deck of giving away all your stuff, but didn't have the access to the blue. And the Prismatic Piper is the one who's in that instance. You're playing almost the instance that Blim gets the inspiration of blue, of going, "I need better ways to to donate my stuff." Mm. And then and then the Prismatic Piper comes and goes, "Oh, let me help you with blue mana." And I feel like yeah, I feel like the it, it's 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 adding to the magic of your commander. It's not adding to the magic of you. Sure, but then does is your library your commander's library, or is that your library? Are you summoning your commander? This is, I mean, well, this, know, is, yeah, this is the whole thing, yeah, right? This is, yeah, those are questions we don't necessarily have answers to, and I think that we have to kind of create our own meta narrative. And I think it's fairly agreed upon. It's only people that like dig their heels in, and then other someone else digs their heels in on a separate um, on on a converse issue and then that's where you kind of maybe create problems because there is no definitive going no it says here that this is right so mm. you're wrong uh, which again that's a whole conversation i mean exactly i'm not i wasn't looking to go too deep onto it that's just that yeah, was no, the no, question that when i saw yeah. this card and i really broke down its flavor and i went yeah that's 100 percent correct i went mm, it's 99.9 percent satisfactory to me there's a 0.1 percent where i'm still going but what if, what even is a planeswalker are you summoning the planeswalker <laughs> <laughs> so yeah having yeah, existential crisis is over your guy it's like what is mana yeah how do i tap a swamp yeah, what is mana different yeah, to yeah, ether? Yeah. What about ley lines? <laughs> and yeah, it just did this whole thing. Yeah, energy. Like, <laughs> exactly. surely energy is just condensed ether, which is the manner of oh, Kaladesh. Right. It's, I don't... it's when I first saw um, energy cards in um, Pokemon, I was like, what the fuck is double energy normal? What is rainbow energy? What is this game? Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, you don't know like, what, what they're what, doing. Explain yourself. Yeah, no. Cool. I feel like if you're, if you're going to be that deep down in these things, obviously they do still have D&D. You can go and be like, go and be anal about your um, about your lore and your narrative. Uh, magic, unfortunately, does have to at some point sit within some rule specification. But as you say, this does a very good job of ticking basically every single box, marrying the two together. Yeah, 100%. So yeah, that's the Prismatic Piper. There is a lot of lore there. I will just say as well, we're about like half an hour into the episode, um, a lot of the lore we've gotten from are the articles that Wizards have put up on the Mothership, where they've been doing, you know, since Theros, they've been doing these lore slide things. Um, I feel like these ones for Commander Legends are a bit more fleshed out than they usually are, especially for certain mm. characters, like the Prismatic Piper. Some of them don't get a lot, um, and some of them are on this list that don't really get a lot of lore. Um, but then there are uh, sort of resources and stuff that have been extrapolated from these uh, articles that are elsewhere online. So yeah, if you do want to see the full list of all these different lore bits, the first place that you should look is actually WotC, which is not really a big uh, a thing that we would say often. Um, but yeah, yeah I, would, <laughs> I, would, I would say for this set, as much as, again, it's not a, a book or a set of web fiction or whatever, as far as the lore slide dynamic goes that they've been doing for the past year or so this has been a fairly decent version of that um but yeah so that's where we're getting a lot of this law from uh, as well as also just being flavor nerds who put our own thing on it as well um cool mm. what have you got next um well here we go again um i'm gonna talk about again <laughs> the, the uh, i know i know i'm sorry uh one second again i have multiple infinite arcane and weaver um, again arcane and weaver um he's uh mardu so red white black for a two three human wizard um he has an activated ability red white black tap second enchantment return target enchantment from your graveyard to the battlefield um, i'm gonna read his flavor text now because i'm gonna come back to it in a second any apprentice with a spell book and two sticks can churn out a fireball this is different 
This is art. Hmm. Um, now he's really interesting. Um, interesting for for a few different um, reasons. Um, the um, artwork uh, by Kiranyana. Um, we've mentioned this, I think, last week, of where the artwork specifically, because there is a typical aesthetic uh, uh, and established aesthetic that certain cards will have certain color palettes, mm. um, and obviously a red, a red, white, blue card will look better having red, white, and blue hues in it, um, just to denote its um, its wedge or whatever. Unless you're going specifically for, I don't even know, even like something like Grixis has a very specific look to it, which is purpley, which is red and blue together. So, I mean, I think there is an established. Um, aesthetic norm to cards and again kind of goes against this there's a lot of purple a lot of blue um in the in the um in the art in the artwork but he's kind of crafting it together into like this kind of goldeny kind of so it kind of doesn't look very much like um a typical mardu uh, mage the problem with that is that we only really have seen like mardu mages like apart from like back in the day where maybe you had a couple of wedge kind of um, cards like you've only seen it really in Khans, Khans of Tarkir, Dragons of Tarkir, Tarkir is a plane. Now, Tarkir is very specific in the fact that clans, in the same way that the shards from Alara, they kind of define a very specific um, feel to certain colors, when actually, realistically, Mardu can be a wide spectrum of different effects and abilities. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting to me that it looks very much like a Jeskai um, monk, but is very clearly not a Jeskai monk. Like it's got similar, and what I've put is glowing eyes. I tried to figure like a better way to say that, like ocular ocular illumination which magic did, eyes. Just sushi. magic you see you know what i mean like it's just magic eyes, magic eyes um, yeah. um, and i don't think most of the mages um or most of the jessica monks had the magic eye kind of look necessary they felt more um grounded in um martial arts you know being able to like use um, the flow of chi and that kind of thing to channel your energy um to me this is the one that screams to me strixhaven uh, mostly because his slaw his law slide talks a lot about how um, he has the ability to snatch other people's magic from the air and reweave it to his own whim. Um, to me, not only is that a really, really cool idea and something I want to talk about in a second, but um, the thing I like about it is it kind of denotes a formal training ground to me, this idea that everyone's practicing in the same kind of space and he can take someone else's magic from the air and recraft it um, into something else. It, it doesn't make, it doesn't sound like he's using it, say, necessarily offensively, as he's using it kind of to show off in the same way that his flavor text kind of has this denotion of that like, he's showing off, he's being quite um, um, indignant about it. He's not a particularly humble person. Um the other reason I think it's maybe strict saving because I know that we're going to have um, MDFCs, the model dual face cards or whatever, whatever the, the, the terminology for them is, returning in cow time in strict saving the next two sets. I feel like um, strict saving is likely where they're going to look at um, MDFCs for enchantments. So obviously we had lands, we had sor- we had um, sorceries, creatures, an instance um, for um, blah 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 um, for Zendikar Rising, and I feel like maybe we'll look at um, equipment and things like that for um, Cow Time. Maybe they do enchantment MDFCs for Strixhaven, in which case Gen kind of fits quite nicely into that already. Um, the reason I mentioned his flavor text earlier is because Gen, you might be you might be a smart, indignant kind of guy, but um, a fireball isn't an enchantment. He says any apprentice. <laughs> Spellbook can two sits can shout out a fireball and it's, it's but but you you work with enchantments, buddy, not not with sorceries. Mm. So sort that out for them. Um, the reason I also like this is because um, reweaving enchantments is really cool because enchantments are strangely intangible um, and they're really broad in terms of uh, magic um, mechanics. Like compare Sanguine Bond to Legion's Landing to mm. Frexian Arena to Frontier Siege. How are any of those enchantments? Some of them are actions. Some of them are... Fu- Frexian Arena is a fucking building. Mm. Like, how is that an enchantment? Legion's Landing. What the fuck is that an enchantment? You've just stepped onto land. You know, the, the, the reason I get indignant is because it's kind of interesting that 
we don't have a lot of um, clarity in terms of like defining enchantments as what they are. And I like that Gen kind of has this idea of where he could reweave enchantment magic and there's a potential to maybe get a little bit more elucidation about it. The same thing if we're going to be working with MDFC um, enchantments in Strixhaven. Again, I'm making massive conjecture here, but if all of this does work together, maybe we look into the law of enchantments, how they're established, how like you can pick apart their magics and all that nonsense. Um, I think it's a similar design space to like Dak or Davriel of where they have, um, they're hijacking other people's magic or taking on the attributes of other people's magic. Um, so it might help. We might not get metaphysical understanding of how the prismatic piper works in, in, in the where and when of the multiverse, but we might might get some mechanical um, understanding of the spell craft of enchantments and exactly what and how that works, which to me is quite exciting. Hmm. Yeah, I like it a lot. I like I, all these kind of uh, sort of, mages that can manipulate things and and they've that, this seems to be a theme that they used a lot in commander legends there's quite a lot of like mages and wizards that that can kind of change things that are already established so i think it's kind of cool and it is a really nice new direction for the colors um yeah very cool indeed yeah cool uh all right well i'm gonna have uh a crack at doing a three color commander that has also completely blown the doors wide open on a new archetype and that is obeka brute chronologist so we got our second chronologist uh obeka is one generic blue black red grixis uh legendary creature ogre wizard um our second ogre wizard uh, ever printed at legendary in magic That's Yidris. Uh, is Yidris is the other one uh the maelstrom yeah. Yeah. Yeah, look at that memory. Yeah. Cool, carry on. Well, he was the lead singer <laughs> of that um precon deck. Um, oh, of course. Yeah, I thought in my in my mind I now have him as the lead singer. Um I have um Meltrum Wonder. Uh, what's his name? Yeah, no, no, I just I have a metal band in my head and now Yidris is the like the lead singer of it. Yeah, in my mind. Obeka like is a 3/4 <laughs> uh legendary creature ogre wizard. Uh the flavor uh, the abilities text is very simple. Tap the player whose turn it is may end the turn. And the uh, reminder text is, exile all spells and abilities from the stack. The player whose turn it is discards down to their maximum hand size, damage wears off, and this turn, quote-unquote, and until of uh, until end of turn, quote-unquote, effects end. And her flavor text is, I'm bored with now. Uh, and the artwork on this one uh, is by Jesper Icing, and we see Obeka punching through time, I guess? I'll just... That word, just yeah, that's fine. Leave it at that. That needs She's no extrapolation. She's punching through time. Punching through time. Um, <laughs> exactly. The reason I think we're mentioning the artworks on these ones a bit more than we did last week with the established lore is because obviously art is something that you get a lot of lore and a lot of flavour from. So if all we have to go off is the art and some of the new lore slides, you kind of need to sort of think about what the artwork's doing as well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, the reason I love Obeka, because temporal mages aren't a new thing. Chronologists aren't a new thing. Heck, we've just spoken about the fact that there's another one in this set and how it fits into things throughout magic. The thing we I get like, them all the time. We get them all the time. But um, um <laughs> I'm I'm not stopping for that one. Uh, so, but the thing I like about Obeka is that her brand of temporal magic makes no fucking sense and is completely bonkers and is the biggest load of what I like to call Doctor Who nonsense. Um, timey-wimey stuff. Timey-wimey stuff, which I'm this I'm going to get a lot of backlash from this. I am not a huge fan of Doctor Who precisely because they fudge over so much of what goes on in that show. And yet, ironically, this card is that, lore-wise, and I'm kind of here for it. And now I may be thinking I need to go and start watching Doctor Who, and maybe I've been a bit uh, wrong. <laughs> I, maybe I've been wrong all this time. So Obeka is from an unknown plane, 
uh, as far as we know, uh, and is yeah a temporal mage um, who is kind of like the anti Teferi. So Teferi is someone who went to Teleria and studied time magic and got in- involved in a time bubble, and you know he has like a whole like learned thing that he's had to kind of throughout the years do. And nowadays, even though he starts off being mischievous, nowadays he's very careful with how he treats time and phasing things in and out of reality since he essentially murdered his entire continent through doing so. Um, you know, we'll gloss over that one. Teferi's a hero. Mm. Um, she can manipulate time literally through brute force. So when we say she's punching through time, that's not us trying to like fudge over what that means. That's literally what she does. So there's things like in her law slide, it says that if she, if you get punched by her, your mother will feel it in the past. If she knocks your teeth out in the now, your baby teeth when you're a baby will also get knocked out. Um, they offer up no meta-narrative as to how that works or how That's you can... That's crazy strong. Like, time magic is nothing to fuck about with, like, dude. <laughs> but how can you physically... That's like me... I don't know. That's like me kicking your memories. Like, it just doesn't quite make sense. I also really love it. Um, oh, that's amazing. It's like she, and she can punch moments out of existence, is also in her law slide. Yeah. So that's why when we set her uh, flavor text, I'm bored with now, and her ability to literally finish the turn and just move on from this moment is very, very flavorful. As a card, mm. this really sings, again, with the flavor. Also, very much like Quain, my only word on this card that I would have taken out for law reasons is the word may. The player may yeah. end their turn, but my rebuttal from that on a play design aspect is that whilst this is obviously this is going to be abused the hell out of by things like extra turn spells and red and whatever else on your own turn in EDH, the political uh, sort of implications for you using this on other people's turns is really great. So, you know, if someone's about to get, you know, cyclonic rifted, or if someone's about to have all their creatures died to, um, like, a settle the wreckage or something, you can help them end their turn. And they don't necessarily have to. So you can say, you can you may end your turn. So you're they're kind of easing back on the oppressive nature on just you being able to go, nope, that's finished now. Nope, you're done. Like a sundial of the infinite kind of thing. Mm. Um, I also like her attitude. So Abeka as a character is very impulsive, which for a time mage seems kind of intuitive because she always wants to live in the now. But she wants to live in the now so much that as soon as the now becomes anything less than absolutely heart-poundingly brilliant, she then moves literally onto the next one because she can physically manipulate time i don't know it just sounds there's nothing they try in magic there's a lot of soft magic systems in magic and then they have tried doing a lot of hard magic systems where they try and have rules yeah. and, and all this kind of thing i mean the, the the concept of the game you know surrounding mana for example is kind of a hard magic system but then certain characters they softball it and abeka is the biggest soft magic system i've ever seen in the game where they literally go ah she can punch time it's fine <laughs> yeah, yeah it's fine we're it's gonna cool. come back to ever again she's it's an old wizard it's okay like and really yeah. i feel like what this card is and again this might just be a kind of wish fulfillment on the side of the players because they do design these cards years in advance and any mistakes that they make in recent play history, as we say, doesn't necessarily mean they get corrected with the next set. It could be corrected in about two years' time. But the fact that Jesper Ising has this very specific artwork where the time that she's shattering turns into shards very much like the kind of aesthetic we've seen on recent fairy cards. You pointed this out a couple of weeks ago. Because... 
a lot of what cards like Teferi do, uh, card, like Teferi cards and this kind of thing, they very much like play on tempo plays and things going on the stack. And then a lot of people who play like Blue Magic in EDH, a lot of their combos will happen on other people's turns because they can untap or do things at instant speed. So I very much feel like Obeka is literally the design team going, we know you don't like getting Cyclonic Rifted. We know you don't like being Teferi'd and comboed out. How about a commander that literally is oh, all about not yeah, this, that? You know, it's in response to Teferi's protection. Is just oh, do you know no, what I mean? Like, and also, or like to a, yeah. in response to a cyclonic rift or or someone you yeah. know comboing off straight away. You know, or even mm. things like um, when people get into infinite loops that don't have an out, like the, the game just stalls. You could end right. the game yeah. turn from them. Um, mm. Yeah, just everything about her is just absolutely one hundred percent cracked nonsense and nonsense mm. in the, I really mean that word it's gob, it's gobbledygook it's garbage but it works yeah. so fucking brilliantly and I really love her I think she's great yeah as you say I think this is a character that's probably just dropped to fulfill and it's very on the nose the function it's fulfilling um, and the fact that it's obviously playing towards a niche plus also in and of herself she as much as she can br- stop other things being broken she herself can be exceptionally broken mm. shock horror yeah um, so i think i think as much as she is very on the nose like we need this effective magic and i think it's really cool i like the idea that we're playing into ogre wizards always being these chaotic kind of they don't really know they're not they have no finesse you know no mm-hmm. no no um grace to their magic i like the idea that they are very ab- abrupt um and forceful with the way that they use magic so very very cool and i again as you say soft law are we likely to get a, a, an unabridged version of her law probably not no. <laughs> because i don't think they can do it properly same as say prismatic piper probably same with aminati we'll probably not see her again because they've pushed i guess it's the same i'd say with this doctor who thing if when you push characters to be so over op it's really hard to justify their foils um, in the same way that if you make a massive, if, if you do a character like this that has exceptional ability, thankfully she's not a planeswalker, she can't gallivant across the multiverse to cause issues. Thank, uh, hopefully whatever plane she's on, she can only abuse it so far. Maybe her intention is only to abuse it so far. So yeah, whatever. Like yeah. You can just brush past it. I think cool. there's there's one line in her law slide, which I think is very indicative of that. And then, then we'll move on. It, it says that she has no interest in good or bad, simply what is fun. So, and I think... Yeah. I kind of think that was maybe a little bit of a, a plea to commander players of going, don't necessarily be an oppressive dick. Just do what's fun. <laughs> oh, wait, there are yeah. three two-mana red spells that are essentially now a time walk with her, um, and that's a Power 9 yeah. band card. Cool. I feel like there's maybe... Um, I like the fact they create these characters that are kind of grayscale on the morality of people like Aminatu and Arkelos, and they're like, oh, the players are going to be nice with the... Oh, God, what do they do to our babies? <laughs> oh, no, what did you do? Yeah, I feel like there's a, a certain degree of that with some of these characters, where they go, look, we deliberately made them neutral. Don't be a dick. And then people just go, I'd be a dick if I want to be a dick. Yeah. yeah, so I think it's I think it's an interesting... But yeah, she's very, very cool. That idea of punching through that... that There's no way that's not deliberately Teferi-based. Um, mm. We could probably ask Jesper specifically. I'm pretty sure that's either his deliberate intention or Wizards asked him to. Yeah, So sure. that's very cool. It feels very fun and tongue-in-cheek as well, which is good. Absolutely. Who have you got next? Um, so I've got Rograk. Um, Rograk um, is our first ever zero-mana um, commander. First ever zero-mana commander. Um, uh, legendary um, and so he's a zero mana cobbled warrior he has a little red um, identifier in the far left of his uh, type line meaning he is a red card um, he is a zero one uh, first strike menace um, oh is it haste oh, oh god Nathan well done trample sorry first strike menace and trample um, obviously as partner flavor text strength is relative we'll come back to that in a second um, 
The reason why I like um, Rograk is because I've been playing a Prosh deck for years, um, and I really like Kobolds. I think Kobolds, um, they have a fractious, fractured and illustrious history. Um, they've only had like a few different representations. They're loading legends, which is, I know last week we said that Ghost of um, Ramirez Pietro, um, or Di Pietro, um, only has, um, is like already real reference to legends. That's a lie. Rograk kind of references it as well, specifically because he's the son of Rogar. Um, Rogar was in Legends. He is a 5-5 five, five for two black, black, red, red. Um, at the beginning of your upkeep, unless you pay red, 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 an opponent gains control of Rogar of Kirkeep and all creatures you control name Cobbles of Kirkeep. If a player gains control of a creature this way, tap it. Creatures you control name Cobbles of Kirkeep get plus two, plus two. Basically, he's a Cobbles lo- lord, and if you don't pay a, a strict upkeep cost, your opponent gains control of all your creatures. Because back in the day, magic was really fun like that. Hmm. Um, the interesting thing about that this is that it's a, it's a really interesting throwback to have Ro, um, to have him being Rograk, son of Rogar, and then say strength is relative to make players go and look, well, who's Rogar then? And this, this, the reason I like this is because you don't get a lot of um, lineage in magic anymore. Like one of the biggest things I liked about Dominaria is that you had Raph, Capuchin, you had Danitha um, as well, and then you had um, Shana, Sisei's Legacy. You yeah. had characters that were generations behind the characters we had in our youth, I say in our youth, I mean, like, for those play- Magic players that have been playing for, you know, a good 15, 20 years, like, this is, these are characters we obviously we've known and were printed in their own time. And if we see printings of them now, it's obviously a, a, a showing of them back in the day. Like, one of the reasons Teferi coming back was really interesting is because a character that I can relate to in a, in a negative fashion, as much as other people can relate to in a negative fashion from back in the day. Like, you know, it kind of bridges the gap between new law and old law. Um, and again, with um, uh, the Ghost of Ramirez, it was interesting that they only had a couple of throwbacks to Legends. This being one of them, I think, is really interesting. And the lore of um, Rograx really in, um, is really cool because the idea is Rogar, his father, um, tried to, in the same way that um, the Cobbles, obviously, um, of Kirkheap specifically idolise and... Um, and uh, think of Prosh as their god, you know, so they do everything to appease him. They create sacrifices, they do everything in his name. Rogar, to, to, to kind of bounce off of this, tried to get a similar um, fealty paid to him. Um, and so he had as much sacrifice being paid to him, um, as, as much devotion being paid to him as much um, as it was to Prosh. Um, Rograk doesn't like this. Rograk thinks this is a bad idea. Rograk wants to basically create civil unrest and, and create a resistance to fight against him. Um, the interesting thing about that is that his resistance against his father's tyrannical uh, rule is um, significantly weaker because obviously Rograx a 5-5. Five five, uh, so Rogar's a 5-5, five five, Rograx a 0-1. Rogar's got all of these cobbles that he makes bigger. Rograx in his artwork, um, he's appealing to a bunch of skulls on spikes, which I've only realised today is a, is a nod that his army is just is, is just a bunch of dead, dead, dead people. <laughs> so he doesn't even have an army. Bless him, he's a zero one with all of... I love his conviction gives him the first jump. His conviction gives him menace. His conviction gives him trample. Does he have any power? No, no, not at all. <laughs> And, and it's amazing because what I also like is it kind of plays back to this idea with um, Goblin King of um, um, Goblin King is like one of the, the original Goblin Lord, the one that gave other goblins plus one plus one. All goblins that wasn't just yours, your opponents as well. Because back in the day, magic was fun. Um, and in the um, in the flavor text for that, to be king, Numskill did in Blog, who did in Unkfell, who did in Viddle, who did in Lol, who did in Alrock. Dot dot dot. I like this idea of succession in goblin races and cobbles to a degree are a facsimile for goblins. I mean. We've already had arguments about what the difference between a cobble and a goblin is, uh, but I like this idea of succession. This idea: the only way Rogar will be taken and um, will be unseated is if someone beats him and takes his place. I would love 
in a few years' time, if they pay this homage and we get a Rograk king of the kobolds and we've seen him overturn his father's um, tyrannical rule. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is looking throughout all of the kobold artworks, which I did today, obviously, um, they're red, blue, green, purple, brown. Like, Rograk's red and his dad's green. The kobolds mm. in Kobolds of Kirkheap Token are blue. Why they made them blue... <sighs> This is one of the most confusing law things. If we don't eventually do it, I might have to petition to Ape Spice Rack to get him to do it because he loves goblins and kobolds. I feel like like sit on the on the coattails of goblins, and we need some justification for why they're every color of the fucking rainbow. Okay, they're not skittles; they're kobolds. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, love Rograk. I love kobolds, and it's um, it's likely to be a deck that I play in the future because he's surprisingly really super powerful. If you watch the recent game nights, the fact you get to play out your commander before playing a land, super cool, super flavorful. We love it. Yeah, I really I agree. I think Rograx and a Rogar is a very cool throwback and a very cool new commander. Uh, all right, moving on. Uh, I have next up Keskit, the Flesh Sculptor. So Keskit is two generic and a black for a legendary creature, human artificer, although you wouldn't uh, know it to look at them, uh, a 1-3. <laughs> Tap, yeah. sacrifice three other artifacts and or creatures. Look at the top three cards of your library, put two of them into your hand and the other into your graveyard, and it has partner. Uh, the flavor text reads, perfection is elusive. Let us try again. Uh, Keskit is also referenced on the card in this set, profane, profane transfusion. So this is one of those cards that I... I had to look up to see if it had any other printings. It's not, it is only in this set. Uh, Profane Transfusion is a sorcery, uh, and the flavor text from that sorcery reads, Those that fall short of perfection can still contribute to the great work. Keskit, the Flesh Sculptor. So Keskit is a character that we have from the uh, Days of the Creators on New Phyrexia, and he is an acolyte of Shieldred, who is the Black Creator, um, who is the kind of big spider goddess, I suppose. Um, he is absolutely obsessed with his Creator as well, so he himself has, um, as part of his compilation, Phyrexian Phyrexianization, uh, if you like, uh, he's given himself spider legs, metal spider legs, and basically a completely robotic body um, in that kind of vein, with only a part of his face being the only kind of human thing left of him. Uh, and he's got this big kind of fur shawl over the top of his back. Essentially, Keskit is the archetypal mad evil scientist. And that's mm. kind of why I like him. There's been a lot of subversion in magic, and rightly so, with a lot of these characters and a lot of these uh, kind of tropes of fantasy where we don't really get um, the super classic ones as much anymore because they've kind of been done to death. I think the last time we got like proper mad scientist territory was with uh, Ludovic um, and maybe mm-hmm. uh, Gerald as well from Innistrad, but they were much more in like kind of a kind Eagle, of a kind yeah. Of yeah, 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 and they you know they dealt with zombies and they were like they were surgeons and doctors that kind of thing. Whereas this guy fills a very similar role, but just to look at him, he he is like a sci-fi villain, right? Keskit the flesh sculptor, um, and Keskit's role is that when Shieldred gains quote unquote new followers, Keskit is the one that completes them and turns them into other acolytes of Shieldred. Um, and I like this idea that Keskit is always trying to do better because as much as the Phyrexians are evil they're nothing if not convicted to their own beliefs right that's almost everything about you know Phyrexian law especially with the the five creators is the idea that they all think their way is best into Phyrexia yeah, bless them they're just they're just trying the hardest they're just you know? trying the hardest um yeah. Elish Norn <laughs> during that 
story arc is the one that won out the white one and has since mm. destroyed the other realms of the creators except for uh is it except for the red one he still got his one kicking around well we right? haven't got a confirmation all we know is that she definitely um Sheldred was left fleeing i know that she took over um the Vorinclex side i think urabras because he was separated off anyway he was already mm. on the side of the mirrors if the mirrors lost i feel like urabras's kingdom probably fell and i don't know about Jin. Cool. This, if anything, Keskit looks very ginny to me, so I feel like she's probably taken over that as well. Sure, exactly. So yeah, the, that's it. And uh, Shieldred was the other sort of main contender against Shieldred, um, against uh, Elish Norn. Shieldred was probably going to be like the sort of next runner-up if Elish Norn didn't quite make yeah. it. Um, so yeah, so Keskit is that. And there's there's not much more to Keskit than that. He's a front-running Shieldred acolyte. He looks the part. He does the business, that's him. And the ability is very flavorful as well, sacrificing three artifacts and or creatures. So it could be that he's, you know, throwing away old attempts at um, compilation. It could be that he's killing off test subjects to try and attain the perfect uh, Phyrexian Acolyte um, to basically get more information from your library. And to fill up your graveyard as well, which is what you would be doing if you were killing test subjects left, right and centre. Um, the reason I do like him, though, is because not only just because of what they are as a character in the law wise it's the fact that we get to see more named characters from that period of magic because mm-hmm. from the phyrexian side of things they really as part of the storyline focused on khan as you would and they focused on the five main praises but they didn't do much else other than that you had some characters like um uh glissa the traitor and like uh who's the gets lord of the vault yeah. 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 <clears throat> so you did have a few of them, but these were very big, heavy hitters, and I quite like seeing the sort of second-tier characters going on. Like, for example, another good one that's very much in the same vein as uh, Keskit is the character of Whisper from the Dominaria set that came out, the most recent Dominaria set, who was kind of Bells and Locks' second-tier lieutenant. And just mm. having these characters that potentially in further stories we can have you know, our protagonists encounter and deal with without it necessarily always being like a boss fight just seems a lot more fleshed out. And I think this, this is an uncommon commander. It's a partner commander. This is exactly kind of the right level of character that they need to be doing for these uncommon partners. Uh, and yeah, I just think his whole, his whole deal is very classic sci-fi fancy bad guy. And uh, yeah, I really like it. I really like a kind of return to, to sort of trope, if you like. I think mechanically as well, the idea that sacrificing three other artifacts or creatures, they don't care if it's flesh or metal. The idea that you, two of these things you put into your hand, that's the advancement and the rest goes to your graveyard, like discarding the bits that you don't need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Very yeah. cool. Very evocative. Plus, who doesn't like Phyrexia? I think we both like sci-fi. I think it's cool. So we've done a lot of high fantasy recently. If you look at all of the different sets across the last, like, say, five five years, we've done things like Eldraine, Dominaria. We've gone back to, like, typical fantasy tropes. I know that maybe they don't want to do sci-fi as much. I don't know what their reasoning for that is. Maybe other companies and other products do it better, quote-unquote better. But I feel like maybe that's why they're putting off new Phyrexia. All I know is that I really liked that fusion from old-school magic, early days magic, of where they had this mix of, say, and we've already spoken about this a few episodes, about this Thran technology idea really intrigues me i like this idea of ancient technology and, and and current fantasy kind of this mix of magic and um an artifice i think it's really interesting um so yeah the more, the more the better for sure um so i've got a random random deep cut as my next one um let's talk about gore moldrak um <laughs> uh, now gore moldrak's really interesting um first time character right first time we've seen this guy this random af- aphthalmologist um no 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 fam 
we've already seen him twice. Um, the reason why you might not know his name is because we've only seen him, and this was um, this wasn't me that found this out. This is someone else who was very um, astute. Um, do Reddit, by the way, during spoiler season, you'll learn infinitely about the uh, world of magic. Um, we've had his name come up twice: once in M12 and once in M15. Um, he is on both um, flavor texts for Amphin Cutthroat and Amphin Path Mage. Uh, now the Amphins are um, humanoid salamanders from Chandelar. Now Chandelar kind of unofficially was the core set. Um, oh, I'm doing air quotes again. It's been a while. Um, like the core set plane um, because it was kind of like typical uh, fantasy. It didn't do anything completely um, necessarily too um, overt or extreme. Um, like n- n- nothing about it specifically um, thematic beyond just being a typical fantasy plane. This is for, for example where the chain veil came from and the anarchia from um the reason i like this uh, card a lot um is because um amphin cutthroat um and amphin pathmage have like decent flavor text i'm not gonna read out the entire thing um but the idea being that this guy gore Mul- Mul- muldrak has um, been paying attention to the amphin and the amphin are uh, kind of like my mages they can work in a way of where they can it's like mnemonic um n- n- Mnemonology, M-E-N-M-I-C, like that idea of working with memory and the way your brain thinks. And what they've done is they've managed to convince everyone of Chandelar they don't exist, while slowly but surely building up their forces. Um, And one of the coolest things about um, Gore is that his um, flavor text, um, sorry, his uh, law slide wasn't, um, it wasn't a, a description about who he is as a person in any way, shape or form. It's just another flavor text. Um, both of his flavor texts from the other two cards are part of his crypto histories. And his law slide is another crypto history. It basically talks about how the Amphins are very slowly but surely overtaking Chandelar and they're basically going to wa- wage um, a war against them. And Gore Muldrak, one blue green for a 3 2 human scout, which is very, I, I like the idea of scouts being um, the people that go out and research different species. And he's essentially a species specialist, which is very cool. I like this idea a lot. Um, and he's a 3 2. You and permanents you control have protection from salamanders. At the beginning of your end step, each player who controls the fewest creatures creates a 4-3 blue salamander warrior creature token. Now, this is really, really cool. The idea of uh, the play pattern around this is that um, it, everyone who has like the least amount of, of, of creatures to pay attention to it slowly but surely have salamanders kind of build up hmm. on their play side until the whole field is just salamanders. And Gorm Uldrak and you, you're fine because you're on Gorm, Gorm Uldrak. He's the only one who's been paying attention to all this shit that's been going on for all these years. He's the only one who paid attention and documented it. And so, so you're fine. You've got protection against the salamanders. But damn straight, if the salamanders won't eventually kill someone. This <laughs> idea, this, idea this, this story idea is fantastic. The fact they gave him no no objective story arc beyond a yet another in, um, um, entry into his crypto histories is fantastic I mean, again like the fact that it's a character that technically does exist in the law like with um jury um of, of where we looked at a character that had only been um listed in flavor text this is just obscure enough that i don't count it as a character that's kind of already existed because sure. no one really paid attention to the random flavor text from m12 and m15 no one expected this and yet it tells a massive massively evocative story plus we're not likely to go to chandelar we haven't done corsets in a while like consistently um the generic fantasy feel doesn't necessarily play very well when you've got all of these different themes and, spe- and specificities in magic now all of these different planes that do general fantasy better because it flexes in this direction or that direction so the fact that we get almost like a history of how Chandelar falls to the Amphin, because in a few years we go there and suddenly I was like, what the fuck? What's going on with all these Amphin? You're like, well, well, buddy, did you pay attention to Gore Muldrak? Because I did. Maybe <laughs> you should have. 
So yeah, for that and that alone, I think it's amazing. This idea of this this heretic, not necessarily a heretic, but this like madman who's paying attention to to things that no one else is, and eventually we see the story kind of we see the cards demonstrate and and present the story that's actually happening quite nicely. Yeah, you have to read into it a little bit, but once you do, it's very clever. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I would sort of agree that this is a character that, although it it doesn't necessarily fall into our remit of brand new character at any establishment. The establishment is just obscure enough and intentionally obscure enough that this is now a completely new fleshed out character that kind of fits in with the backstory as opposed to jury where I think the jury of the review only appeared on some flavor text as well as Helena and Elena. But their whole deal was very realized before they got the card. So yeah, I think, I think you're bang on there. Mm. Protection from salamanders. What a silly line of text. Yeah. Very, very <laughs> cool. Uh, my next one is uh, Rayav, Master Smith. This is a legendary creature, dwarf artificer, 2-2, for a red and a white. Uh, this is an uncommon that doesn't have partner, which is kind of strange. I wonder why they gave certain things partner and other things not. Um, mm. Not for this time, not for this conversation. Um, Rayav reads, whenever a creature you control that's enchanted or equipped attacks, that creature gains double strike until end of turn. Uh, the flavor text reads there's always room for improvement and the art is by Scott Murphy and yep in the artwork we see Rayav adorned with a bunch of trinkets and glowy ether tools uh, notably he is wearing a vambrace uh, which has a bunch of tools on it and a big glowy pointy thing uh, obviously we don't know what it is so this guy is very clearly an artificer um, in the lore Rayav is from the plain of Kaladesh which is pretty much where the only place we get dwarves from nowadays. There were a couple of dwarves in the latest core set that I think were maybe meant to be from Lorwyn, uh, not from Lorwyn, sorry, from uh, Eldraine, although it wasn't specifically mm. stated. And we didn't, we only got a couple of dwarf cards in Eldraine. But for the most part, from like the recent sort of. Well, five what do you mean? We got, we got seven of them. What do you mean? That was seven one dwarves. card. Don't fucking test me on seven dwarves. <laughs> <laughs> from the past yeah, five years of magic. <laughs> For the past five years of magic, uh, or so, I'll go. It could even be longer. Kaladesh has been like kind of the big dwarf plane. Um, his whole deal is that he is, as many people are on Kaladesh, an inventor and a smith and an artificer. Um, but his big claim to fame is that he's made a gauntlet that has a bunch of automated, very fine, precise tools attached for it that you would wear to continue doing your work. And he is so confident that he is the only smith on Kaladesh that can actually create such an item, that he has made the designs for his product public as part of a publicity stunt. So that means that anyone can look at his designs and try and recreate this item. But he's the only smith that can actually do it and actually make such a precise tool. And the law states that he is correct in this assumption and that he gets a lot of business and a lot of work because people want variations on this tool. Um, that's a fairly simple law and backstory, especially for a character from Kaladesh, because almost every main character from Kaladesh that wasn't necessarily a revolutionary was some sort of inventor, and maybe both at the same time. Um I have one gripe about this card before I talk about why I think it's really good. And I'll get it out of the way first, because it's really petty, and I'm really disgusted with myself. But I'm going to say it anyway. Um, the law states that he's made a gauntlet. In the artwork, it's not a fucking gauntlet. It's a vambrace. <laughs> I know well, that's yeah. petty, but it's definitely no, not no, no, a gauntlet. We all know what a gauntlet is. If, any, if Marvel has taught us anything, we know what a fucking gauntlet looks like, okay? If you're wearing a wrist thing, I don't know, man. It just seems there's no, like, book to fuck up on. Come on, wizards. Give your artists the right information, man. Um, yeah, whatever. Whatever. It's fine. I'll get over it. I'll get over it. <laughs> the thing that I like about Rayav 
why I think it's really important why he's in my top six is because we need more dwarves in Magic the Gathering, dude. We need more of them. They're a huge fantasy trope. They're massive. They are as big as elves and humans and dragons. They're in every fantasy IP. And maybe there's like some design like note on a whiteboard somewhere in like Wizards HQ where the design team, every time they go to do like a new race of characters, like in a plane, there's a big note that says, we don't do fucking dwarves in Watsy. Or there's like some kind of too cool for school thing or whatever. But we need more of them because I think they, mm. they are distinct, you know, as much as races like the core from Zendikar, we kind of griped a few episodes ago that, you know, it was only in the third Zendikar set that they actually started to feel a bit more unique and they weren't just like an amalgamation of elves. They weren't just like cliff elves or cliff humans, you know, mm. um, they actually felt like their own thing. I think dwarves do feel like their own thing across different planes. And I think what their thing is, is that they are the kind of other flip side of the coin to Vidulcans. So Vidulcans are obviously also on Kaladesh as well as being on other planes. But if we're looking at artifact synergistic races um, across the board, Vidulcans tend to fit that in blue a lot of the time. And a lot of their thing is about drawing cards and is about sort of, you know, knowledge gained through artifice, you know, and creating great works to expand your knowledge of the universe. Whereas the Kaladesh dwarves especially, they are also very heavily artifact synergistic but their whole thing is about making things more uh, more precise and more efficient. And in the kind of traditional red-white way, that does involve combat. So the fact that Rayav gives things uh, double strike until end of turn, if they're equipped or enchanted, enchanted usually gets stapled onto these things as well, means that his items are so good that whatever item he gives you, it'll do its thing, but it will also do it literally twice as good as anyone else does it. So if he gives you a hammer, it will hit for twice as much. You know, If he gives you like a pair of, you know, what boots, you're going to be able to run twice as fast and hit twice as hard with those boots on. So I really like that. And I really like the identity that they're starting to give dwarves because they need something. They can't just be like just another humanoid race because that'd be such a waste. So all of these yeah. things, I think this is a very good direction. And I'm not usually, I don't think about dwarves that often. <laughs> like this isn't something, not like my werewolf thing. Like I'm not flying my flag for the dwarves of magic. But every time I see a new dwarf commander, I always think that there's such a cool design space. Do you remember the like dwarves from Kaladesh? You had uh, Depala, Pilot Exemplar, or whatever mm. her name was, the one which you know gave all dwarves and vehicles plus one plus one and did all kind of vehicle stuff. Like they have really cool identities, uh, and I think yeah, they just need to keep pushing the envelope with them because we need we need artifact synergies that aren't blue in Magic. It's as mm. you know, simple as that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Not 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 to sell them too short. The problem is that they have vehicle synergy almost specifically because of Kaladesh in the same way that cores have artifacts uh, equipment synergy specifically because of Zendikar. This is and true. these are problems because they shoehorn, as you say, an entire race towards a specific um, subtype. And at that point, their mechanical diversity really suffers. Um, and the fact that they've managed, they've pulled back on them a lot. Like I was thinking as you were saying this, I was like, well... It's weird that Kithkin got done instead of dwarves because Kithkin obviously played towards his hobbit trope and yet the difference between hobbits and humans was quite distinct in Lord of the Rings because they had almost like sleuthy roguishness to them whereas the Kithkin of Lorwyn were, were specifically just plus one plus one counters, first strike, all the, all the normal typical white weenie stuff. And it's going to be really interesting to see how they go moving forwards now they're playing with all these different races, especially seeing as we're coming up towards a Dungeons & Dragons set. Mm. Maybe we'll get something that is a little bit more towards Auromancy specifically for dwarves as well i know you said that obviously we uh, dropped together equi equipped and enchanted um, because yeah. typically it allows you to play for both auras and equipment which is good 
but yeah, it's it's interesting you say it feels like the set they were in um, kind of defined them very specifically, Dapala specifically only allowing you to get dwarves or vehicles. And if you don't want to play that specific archetype, you're not playing dwarves. In the same way, if you don't want to play with equipment with Rayev, you're not playing him. But I think, I think that's fine, though. Having a, a setting which gives your race their niche, I think, is okay, because that's how we get anything and everything. But there we go. We don't always have to agree with everything. Uh, what's your next one? Uh, my next one's Prava. Um, who um, I was originally going to do um, Nemrith, the fairy legend, um, but she was really boring. She had nothing interesting to talk about. Prava, on the other hand, does. Prava has some very interesting things going on for her. Um, not only um, within her Lord side does she talk about um, Lysia, um, who was the vampire um, from or oh, uh, from the same um, set as uh, um, Markov. Um, so she was one of the sub-commanders that you could have used from there. And so we didn't really get much about her. We didn't really know anything about where she was from um, beyond the fact that she looks very Roman um, in her um, appearance, in her attire. Like she's got like a Roman helm on, um, it looks like, in the background. People thought maybe Fiora because the architecture looked very Fioran. Um, but I think over the years we've talked, um, there's been discussion about maybe um, that she was the, um, that the um, that she has interaction with Saskia. Uh, Saskia being more Gaulic um, from the Gauls, and we've talked about this before on this um, on this podcast already. Um, the idea being that Prava specifically specified uh, still of the Legion, um, and she specifically specified to uh, be have multiple battles with Lucia with a very very different military outlook on the way that she does things. Uh, like Lucia is exceptionally merciless; uh, she's willing to sacrifice her own uh, troops to um, to further her goals. Whereas Prava has been known um, to be um, have the lowest mortality rate. Um, in terms of like wars, in terms of like amount, amount of her troops that she's lost. Uh, so she's a 1-4. Um, she um, gives other token creatures on your turn um, one, uh, plus one plus uh, four until the end of turn. Um, and then you can pay three and a white uh, to make a 1-1 one, one creature token. Um, she has partner. Uh, so obviously you can partner up with any other number of, of uh, partner providers as you want to. And then she's a, 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 a cat soldier. Um, the reason I like this is because it's, it's expanding lore on other characters that we didn't necessarily have expansion on. Like Lucia was kind of left nebulously, kind of there was an unknown plane without any real defini- um, definition on her whatsoever. Um, so we still don't know what plane we're looking at. Um, but what I like is it's almost like um, a counter to Theros being that Greco um, style of talking about um, like the uh, history and the law of looking at hydras, krakens, that kind of thing, even if it is a bit of a bastardization on, on, on the purity of it. So it does look like, you know, like the Iliad and the Odyssey as inspiration for these great um, trials like heroes and monsters, whereas whatever plane Prava and Lucia and we'll assume um, Saskira from is more feudal. It's more um, army versus army. And it's something we didn't necessarily get we looked at, say, Khans. Like Khans was originally inspired by Monseng, um, the uh, plane chase uh, plane, where it had giant armies kind of coming at each other across um, across some um, foothills. We didn't. We haven't really got like uh, an army feudal plane in a long time. Like even though War of the Spark was this great climactic battle, it was those are planeswalkers against a zombie army. It wasn't people versus people. It wasn't like having to deal with your losses. It was. It's almost like um, the set, the plane that Obnixus originally came from, was one of these planes where. Everyone's fighting all the time until Obnixus eventually killed everything to win the war, to win the greatest war, which was, you know, like, and then he was so bored he had to move on to another plane. This idea of having a feudal plane, I think, is really, really interesting. I like the idea that she puts herself ahead of her and uh, represents her army, like, um, uh, kind of uh, morality, like, morality wise, where she is a one four and then she gives the rest of her troops plus one, plus four. 
like so it's like this, this idea of having typically in a, in a war you'll have disposable troops you know you, you, you're realistically going to have people that die within your army and uh, the fact that she has you know she creates one one white soldier tokens completely nondescript tokens don't have names or anything in fact she has she can create a disposable army but in fact she protects it almost with herself being a one for and giving plus one plus four um, specifically to creature tokens to underrepresented characters that don't have their own name um, their own background i think is uh, very interesting yeah, cool. Yeah, I like Prava a lot. There's um, there are a lot of uh, sort of cat soldiers across Magic. Leonin tend to be one of these anthropomorphized groups that do get a lot of showing. Um, but it's always kind of nice when you see legendary creatures of it because people love Leonin. It's always nice to get more Leonin. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So my last one then is uh, Livio, Oathsworn Sentinel. Livio, Oathsworn Sentinel is a one and a white legendary creature, human knight for 2-2. So far, so very predictable. Um, His abilities, however, are one and a white, choose another target creature, its controller may exile it with an Aegis counter on it. Uh, And then the second ability is two and a white, tap, Return all exiled cards with Aegis counters on them to the battlefield under the owner's control. And Livio has partner. He's one of the rare partners that you can get. Uh, art is by Kakai Kataki uh, and shows uh, Livio in the throes of battle with a big, uh, I suppose, two-ended spear. I know there's lots of different definitions of what weapons are. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. In full armor with a big flowing red cape. Um, Yeah, this guy looks pretty badass. A little bit boring with the kind of uh, creature types and whatever else. Like It looks quite boring on the surface and this is one of those characters where when I was researching for this episode I was going through all the lore slides. This one actually picked me up on the lore rather than what the card did. And then as soon as I looked a little bit harder at what the card did, I suddenly started to get a little bit more interested. So Livio is from the uh, Plain of Fiora, which is the uh, Roman-inspired, or Italy-inspired, I should say, uh, plain from the conspiracy sets. So it's kind of Renaissance Italy. Think sort of like Game of Thrones if it had more pizza. I think then Fiora is kind of like where you need to be. Um, So Livio is from a noble house on Fiora. We don't know which one. uh, But he renounced his... uh, heraldry and his name when he saw his father who was the head of this house uh, killing a village of commoners to basically ruin the land to spite another nobleman that he was having a feud with he got very disillusioned with the whole thing and uh, swore his life to protecting the common folk of Fiora and uh, Paliano, which is the big high city on this plain uh, so he is essentially I like to think of him he's kind of like Batman right he's like from a from a noble background he has lots of cash and he puts all of that towards fighting crime essentially and corruption um so that's pretty cool and his card really reflects that i like the idea that he can exile other things and it's not necessarily your stuff it could be anyone else's and then he is responsible for bringing it back um i don't quite know what why the word agus is used for that counter do you is it some kind of literary thing that i'm not picking up on yeah, it's it's. I guess it's the the idea is um, to have Aegis as the protection or backing or support of a particular person or organization. Oh, there so we go. Protecting. So yeah, specific. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really cool. And I, but what I do like about this card isn't just that he's just you know a typical white knight. He saves other things from being harmed or whatever. The fact that his second ability is dependent on him bringing them back 
is another quite political aspect that I think may belie a part of Livio's character that his law slide doesn't belie to. So in the law slide, it kind of seems that he's very self-righteous. He's very um, on the side of good and for the common people. But his card also indicates that he can be still quite political and that he's still not quite free of the political games that the elite of Pagliano kind of play. Um, in the law slide, it also suggests that uh, Queen Marchesa uh has kind of noticed Livio and like he's on her radar which could if we ever go back to a conspiracy set could be a further storyline that we kind of explore where the past few uh sort of conspiracy sets have been about Marchese's rise to power the third one could be about how she starts to get overthrown and like a revolution kind of starts to happen which I think is kind of cool uh Livio's also referenced in another card in this set like a little bit like Keskit uh on staunch throne guard and the flavor text on staunch throne guard which is the only flavor text we have for him is uh Brago in his arrogance let the throne's defenses fall dormant our new queen is not so incautious Livio oh sworn sensible so it's yeah, it's this idea that he is definitely against the aristocracy in as much as he believes that they are oppressors as opposed to saviors of the city, which is, I think, is not a not a new idea, especially on that plane. But it's nice to see other characters kind of fall into this kind of thing. Because there are a lot of legendary creatures that we've had from the conspiracy sets which do sort of fall into this idea of being, like, people protectors. Uh, but I kind of feel like the the exiling stuff and then bringing them back not as an automatic triggered ability or activate um, triggered ability is an activated ability that you have to pay into. And then what happens if Livio is killed? If he exiles something with any counter on it, he gets killed, goes back to the command zone. You don't recast him all game. That person's thing is just, just then lost. So he can't bring them back. I think it's just, yeah, it's a lot more, we've seen this kind of white knight trope a lot in magic. It's one of the big sort of staples of that colour and of knights as a tribe. Um, but this is the first time I've really looked at a knight card and thought that it's actually got a little bit more swivel to its lore and nuance, both as a play piece and as its kind of backstory. Um, and I didn't think that when I first saw the card. So it was a bit of a surprise for me. Well, I mean, do you, have you had any thoughts on Livio? Did you kind of pick him out when you first saw him? He's one of the few ones I'm surprised does have partner. Oh, really? I feel like he's self-contained story. I feel like some of them clearly fulfill a role, like, say, um, Prava specifically creates tokens, and Rograr specifically is a great uh, Voltron commander, or a great place to, say, um, put an equipment on, all that. But, like, I think it speaks to having someone else that fulfills the other side that you don't have. Mm. Whereas with Livia, I feel like it's almost like self-contained flavor, like it doesn't need the partner. Whereas I think other, par- um, other characters that didn't, say, like... Um, um, Belby, for example, or um, a jury maybe should have had partner because they're quite narrow in what they do, but probably maybe bounce off something else a bit better. And yeah. I think that's obviously an, an, a conversation for another day. Beyond the fact that I don't think he needed a partner, I do like that self-contained, willing to sacrifice himself for other pe- for others. I just like the idea also in the meta-narrative of where he does the great thing of laying down his life to save everyone, and then you just recast him. He's like, hey guys! And I was like, what? But I thought you were sacrificing us. I did. I, I did actually die. I just, uh, yeah, shh, don't worry. I can come back whenever, whenever I want. Don't worry <laughs> about it. Shh, it's fine. You know, beyond beyond that aspect, yeah, I think it's a very nice contained little story. I like this idea of, um, I like do like the idea of him being Batman. What I like is the fact that he's kind of playing more with a Robin kind of weapon with the with the staff rather than being a Batman. But um, oh, he's got more of like a Damian fine. Wayne staff, yeah, like a bow staff. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Beyond that, 
Yeah, very, very cool. And yeah. also, the more we get of um, Fiora, the better. Like, again, if uh, Prava is um, from like, any of the characters that play from another set, um, from another character's setting, even if we don't know what that setting is, all it's doing is expanding lore in the future. Yeah, so, Fiora yeah. is one of those planes where I feel like it should be more popular than it is. And I don't necessarily think it's just to do with the fact that it was a conspiracy set. So at the time, it wasn't like a mainline set. Because in Commander products, there's lots of like things like the Monarch mechanic, which is a big part of this uh commander legends build like they brought it back as a keyword for this set was introduced in conspiracy so commander players especially are very aware of this plane i just think yeah maybe maybe we need like a refresher maybe it is because they were ancillary sets people didn't really know about it but then everyone knows about battle bond and everyone knows about the arenas and the kind of esports aesthetic of battle bond so i don't Um, know maybe Maybe just before the whole, like, there was a big wave, I think, of popularity for Magic. I think Conspiracy kind of just sat just before that. Um, and again, being ancillary does does kind of play against it for the average person. Like, I, if it was, say, an arena version, if, if it was something you could play on Arena, I think it'd be hugely more popular. But sure. the fact it doesn't necessarily have that platform probably does it in Injustice. Hmm. Cool. So who is your last pick of the episode? Um, my last pick is Zara, Renegade Recruiter. Um, not only am I, am I a big sucker for alliteration um, and assonance, so Renegade Recruiter doing a very good job there. Um, what I like about this set more than anything, so Zara is um, a three blue red um, legendary human pirate, four three with flying. When she attacks, look at the defending player's hand. You may put a creature card from it onto the battlefield under your control, taps in attacking that player or planeswalker they control, return that creature to its owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. Um, shockingly, Nathan likes thefty cards. Um, but the reason I like this is because it's um, an interesting dynamic having both Kaladeshi and Ixalani pirates in the same set. Um, I think it's good because it highlights the differences between them really well. The reason, uh, the, the reason why pirates are kind of interesting to me is they're a massive popular tribe that only had like a few... Um, was it the Talus? The Talus back in the day? I used to play with um, like, with cards back from like, Odyssey, and there was a few like piratey-themed cards, but beyond that, we didn't really get any. And then we had like a huge influx, a quite, I'd say, for lack of a better word, shallow influx between Ixalan and Kaladesh, because they didn't necessarily push the envelope on super powerful generals. So even Beckett Brass, you've got to jump through some loopholes to get the full effect out of her. Um, but I like the fact they were able to put both of them into the set, because it kind of shows that recently they've, they've created a a, 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 um, a tribe that does have uh, mechanical diversity as well as aesthetic diversity we also did get a lot of uh we did get a lot of pirates from unknown planes as well because there are uh, cards like dockside extortionist glinthorn buccaneer from like recent commander sets and mainline sets which are goblins and minotaurs which were on ixalan but they're not the same kind of goblins and minotaurs confusingly and i think a few of the pirate cards in this set as well are kind of low-key actually not from either Ixalan or Kaladesh, even though those are definitely the two main places that people are pulling from. Yeah, I think it's like almost opposite to like the um, the way they did with dinosaurs. They just went back and errated a load of cards to also be dinosaurs mm. to kind of extend their lore and create, create like a broader um, um, card pool for them to play with. Um, I feel like with pirates, they already kind of did exist and they kind of had to kind of reinforce like, no, no, this is a, an existing archetype across however many... Like pirates, again, it's a job title. It's not like you can't be a pirate on a... As long as a plane has something to steal there can be pirates mm. right yeah so um the thing i like about her though is that she is um a renegade recruiter basically the idea was that she was um her, her she had a silver tongue and it was told that she could basically recruit anyone to her side um against the consulate throughout the um the um the, the, the story of um aether revolt um 
part of the reason why this really appeals to me, and it's something I only realised today, I was thinking about like where in popular culture, why I like, I like the idea of Sky Pirates so much. Um, and I was thinking first, maybe Mortal Engines, maybe a little bit of his Dark Materials. No, 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 no. It was from the Edgeworld series by uh, Paul Stewart and Chris Riddle. If you've got kids out there, anyone who's listening who's got young young kids, go and get them the Edgeworld series because it is one of the best series of books that I forgot that I read as a kid. And it plays a lot into this idea of Sky Piracy using... Um, technology like um rocks that float naturally by their um by their biology uh, by their physiology i like the idea that the same th- kind of thing in um Kaladesh, where they use the aether um, and the aether kind of cr- there's an aether sphere around the um around the plane um it's almost like our ozone layer um and it's obviously like pure mana and it's what they get a lot of their uh, mana from because no there's no true mages in Kaladesh. they're all artificers who know how to um craft it in specific ways using machines and stuff like that what the reason i'm get- the reason i get to this is the crux of it is i'd love to see a sky a sky plane or a, a story that was like sky based i know we recently had a little bit of it in um zendikar with the sky claves i know we got like a little bit of in, of in Ikoria, um in the book um, in the um um in the sundered bond of where they go to the the, the, the um what's the um city called sky sail yeah is it sky sail yeah, Sky Cell. Um, and they're up there and there was like, you know, it's like a merchant um, hodgepodge of all these airships um, like wrapped together. I'd love to see a sky plane if we could do it, like an air setting of something where they like, you know, going off, like taking down uh, the Aether Whales and that kind of thing. Like we didn't necessarily get a lot of it. A lot of um, the story was based down on the ground. Um, so for me, this is a really good interpretation. So like things that I really like in general fantasy, I like the idea of sky ships and things like that. We don't necessarily get a lot of it. Um, I do like the fact that she plays very well with this idea of bounce effects and flicker effects to be able to keep the creatures mechanically. The only thing that's interesting is that there were no red or blue revolt cards in Kaladesh. So if you were going to look at her being a Kaladeshi pirate and try and find some revolt cards, because obviously the creature leaves the battlefield from your side, which triggers revolt, there are no cards in her colours that you can actually play from the set, which is an interesting note. It's only something I found out today when I was looking at things. Um, But it is interesting to see that sometimes they don't necessarily play a card to play specifically within their set's mechanics, even if it does play a lot with the bouncy shenanigans that the pirates of um, Ixalan had. And the fact that the two can work so well together, and I didn't necessarily choose um, Mr. Wrath because he was a little less exciting, uh, Vargas Wrath to be in the other is it legend from the set i think zara is a bit more interesting and it was i like i do like the fact they put them both in the sex then you have a moment of going oh wait which which plane's it from and you look and you go oh right yeah the filigree across the arm guard right yeah fair enough probably not a sea pirate kind of hard to tell so we got yeah okay cool I, again that idea of being able to fuse both together and it feel cohesive i think it's very clever and they did a good job with it yeah i think pirates in general have a quite a consistent uh feeling across all the planes because no matter what you're stealing, as you say, like you've got the same sort of temperament. So yeah, I think it's kind of cool. Um, I do wish they would stop printing creatures that are so similar to the Ixalani pirates. Um, like again, go back to like Dockside Extortionist. He looks like a pirate that you would find on Ixalan, but he's definitely not mm. the same kind of goblin because it does kind of throw things off a bit. I think they should probably be a little bit more bold with how they do things. But, you know, yeah. hey-ho, it's an infinite multiverse. I suppose they can do what they want. Yeah, how do you not do pirates without the trope of tri- trifawned hat or the hook or the, the peg leg? Like, obviously, our representation of pirates is very fan- fantasized. Um, and specifically, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean have done a great job of everyone having an idea in their head of what a pirate looks like. Um, so it is interesting to think that maybe magic might suffer for that a little bit, that it can't break that aesthetic. Um, um, which might be, you know, demonstrative of why Ixalani pirates and Kaladeshi pirates and then random other plane pirates all kind of look the same. Mm. Because, yeah, for us, we just have a very clear representation of what we think a pirate is. And if they def- if they move away from that too much, then maybe we won't associate the two together. I don't know. Maybe that's a conversation they have. Maybe. I mean, but then again, it does sort of tie the aesthetic together, I suppose. So may- maybe it's uh, a blessing in disguise. 
But cool. Exactly, yeah. All right. Well, that is our top six each uh, slots for our favorite brand new commanders for Commander Legends. Um, and yeah, as I said, sort of uh, in the middle of the episode, I kind of feel like it would have been impossible for them to do a full on narrative like either a book or maybe it would have been even difficult for them to do lots of web fiction with 70 odd new legendaries. Maybe they would have had to have been forced to do only like a select few, like very much like we've done with these review episodes. But I kind of feel like as far as lore slides go, and I don't want this to become just the norm, although I feel it already has been. I feel like the lore slides for these legendaries were a lot more thought out and a lot more fun than lore slides of, say, like the Theros era, where they didn't even spell half the character names right, let alone, you know, make a slight <laughs> mistake of Gauntlet versus Vambrace. You know, I think I think they're finally starting to find their feet with what lore we have. And the fact that web fiction came back for Zendikar, the fact that the lore slides are getting better, despite the fact that they're still not really enough. I think this is maybe a good sign that ancillary sets and mainline sets will start to get more interesting, more fun, and just more lore in general from what we've had recently, which is, you know, it's always a good thing. Yeah, it's a strange dichotomy. You think about like the um, the web fiction episode of the Gitrog monster. The entire narrative of that story was was didn't really focus on the Gitrog monster whatsoever. So if you've got like say a Lord slide, a lore slide, they did it, you know, proactively. They went back um, and they did a lore slide for him. They probably learned more about the Gitrog monster from that lore slide, but there was way more nuance to a story that didn't basically focus on him at all. Mm. And yet, and there, obviously there is some, where is, where they want to push that? Do they want a story that's kind of nebulously about that character that doesn't give you any facts about it, but kind of presents the fear of the monster better? Or do you want a lore slide that tells you it's really, really scary instead of, it's, it's show versus tell really, mm. isn't it at that point? And that must be difficult for them. And obviously, as us being fussy Vorthosians, we're never going to be fucking happy. No, we won't. So keep trying, bitches. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> um, other than that, guys, if you have any new legendaries or any older legend- uh, legends that you want to talk about, or if you have anything around Commander Legends that you want to shout us about, or if you just want to say hey, or if you just want to tell us that we've got a shit show and you don't listen to it, even though you've already got an opinion on it, you can find us on Twitter at MTFlavoring. Uh, our Twitters are... And at Andy Manface, Nathan's yours is at the Fox in the Moon. Uh, MT flavoring at gmail.com is where you can send those sweet, sweet emails. Um, yeah, guys, other than that, I have really nothing much more to say about Commander Legends. I'm just desperate to get my hands on it and actually play. Hopefully, yeah. tomorrow is when our product will come. Um, do you have any final words on Commander Legends before we leave it alone forever and never mention it again? <laughs> no, I, th- I hope I spoke slightly slower this week than last week. I listened back last week, and holy shit, if you kept up with that, good job. <laughs> um, this week, I hope I've got a little bit slower. Um, but yeah, there's so much to talk about. There's so many legends we didn't even get to. I'm sure if you do like this kind of lore aspect, this set must have spoken to you in some way. So I'm glad that everyone's out there and enjoying and indulging. Um, Absolutely. And, and if you're not do because this set's fantastic yeah if you do want to talk about more legendary guys genuinely we are on our twitter um every single day talking about legends and kind of interesting little topics that will then bleed into these episodes like the jury blim um talking about artist representation in the game that was something that got kicked off from a random thought we had on our twitter so you can see a lot of the genesis for our ideas going on that platform so do check us out hit that follow button uh, also if you do find yourselves on youtube guys we do have a youtube channel uh magic the flavoring on youtube nice and creative hit that subscribe button and we do flavor cracker packs uh, individual lore episodes and uh, video versions of our interview episodes uh, as soon as we get our product, uh, we will be cracking it open to do packed with flavor episodes based around Commander Legends, so check those out. Uh, other than that, guys, all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for listening. This has been Magic the Flavoring. We'll see you soon.